Welcome to Inside the Vatican from America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I will take you behind the headlines and into what's going on at the Vatican. This week, we cover what's happening at the Synod on Young People, give you an update on the Vatican's response to Archbishop Vigano's accusations, and update you on what's going on between North Korea, South Korea, and the Holy See. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Up first, the Synod on Young People, the Faith and Vocational Discernment is now in full swing. If you haven't been following, here's a refresher. The Vatican is currently hosting a month-long meeting of bishops and other representatives from around the world about young adults. For the first couple weeks of the Synod, the 300 or so representatives and bishops from around the world each stood up and brought one issue to the table that they thought was the most pressing to discuss at the Synod. Then they broke off into language groups to discuss the points that had been raised, and they put together a draft document that was submitted to the Pope this morning, so Tuesday the 23rd. It will now be subjected to review and uh, perhaps amendment as a result of the reflections that the individual Senate fathers will do this evening. And then they will modify or change whatever. And the final document will come on the Senate floor on Saturday morning, and they will vote one by one on the paragraphs. The document seems to be more condensed. It seems to have several new things in it uh, i don't quite what that what that means just somebody who saw it told me this they didn't give you any clues as to what the new things were well m- most of them haven't had time to re- uh, to read it remember they got it this morning that makes sense i think by tomorrow morning we'll we'll know much more but uh, this document is still confidential it's not been released Uh, We will get, on Saturday evening, we will get the final results of the document. And if Pope Francis follows his previous pattern, he will decide that the document is made public immediately with the voting for each paragraph. We'll have more on what ends up in that final document next week. But for now, I asked Jerry about some of the topics that might appear in the document based on what he's heard in the discussions and the press briefings that he's attended. I think the final document will have many things. Uh, they talked, for example, about, uh, I mentioned I started about holiness, the need to have young people get formation. Quite a few of them said the need to improve our liturgies. Hmm. In, in what way? To make, first of all, the, the homilies better to have more music to make to make a, a liturgy where people participate aren't just observers and it's surprising that in this synod with so many big issues that this comes up then along with that you have the whole question of human trafficking has come up the question of um, the different countries, different situations. Jerry said that one group focused a lot on migration. Because you've got three aspects to the migration question. Those leaving their own country, moving to another country. Those who arrive in a country of transition. So they arrive, but they're heading somewhere else. And then the reaching the country of destination and how you get integrated. So each of these are different kinds of problems. And these three different sets of problems came out from the group headed by Cardinal Supic of Chicago. They spoke about the right to remain. Oh, interesting. So the right for a person who migrates to another place to stay in that country or the right for a person to stay in the country they're from? 
Well, there are different uh, dimensions to it. First of all, many of them do not want to leave their homelands, their families, to move elsewhere. And they have a right to remain, but they have a right to remain in certain conditions. And uh, then, of course, when they move to another country, they also have to... I think it's, it's the only report that I've seen in the Synod which has focused on this. They didn't spell it out, but it's it's an interesting kind of subject that I think has a lot of uh, needs to be unpacked quite considerably. One topic that hasn't been discussed much in the main synod hall, but which Cardinal Supich, the same bishop who ran that group that focused on migration, said came up a lot in the small group discussions was LGBT issues. He said that the young people at the synod have been asking the bishops to be more welcoming to LGBT people and to their families. Last night, I sat with a number of synod participants, a number of bishops and cardinals, and they all said we have to somehow go back home, to go back home to carry the experience of this synod back home, because synod means walking together. And they said this is what exactly has happened. And one cardinal who had been at, I think, eight synods said, I, we've not had this experience before of having young people participate, not just listen, but actively participate, actively be in the groups. And he said it's produced a totally different dynamic. It's as if the presence of young people has enabled them to lose some of their sense that, you know, we teach, you follow. That model is out. And I I think it it holds a lot of promise, and many people are looking forward to seeing what the Pope will make of it at the end. Jerry's referring here to the apostolic exhortation document that Pope Francis will write up after the Synod, instructing people how to put the resolutions from this meeting into practice. Because he's, he's been here at the meetings every morning, greeting every single participant, going to coffee breaks with them. And then at the end, at the end of the sessions, he will go and speak to one group or another. So it's not as if the Pope is looking down. He's actively participating with them. And this has impacted heavily on the bishops as well, because they understand this is how we should be in our diocese. So there's a sense that the church is being rejuvenated by this experience. And they think that what has happened here should go out to the diocese to the different countries, and similar things should be initiated. So in like in the United States, the, at the national level, but also at the local diocesan level, that you get the bishop bringing in the young people, having synods, uh, where young people are an active part of it. I'm 24, and as a young person, I would love to see something like this take place in more dioceses. Jerry and I will have more on that final document that's coming out of the Synod on next week's show. And you can find up-to-date reporting and analysis on that at americamagazine.org. Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the former papal ambassador to the United States, issued a third letter last week in what has become a series of letters accusing senior Vatican officials of covering up abuse by former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick who was removed from ministry and resigned from the College of Cardinals earlier this summer when a church investigation revealed that he had abused a minor. Throughout the summer, more stories came out revealing that it was kind of an open secret that Cardinal McCarrick had been sexually abusing seminarians and priests as well. 
Since this is our first episode of Inside the Vatican, we're going to recap what happened this summer with Archbishop Vigano's letters. On the 25th of August, Archbishop Vigano published the first of three letters in which he accused the more than 30 senior Vatican officials under the pontificate of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis of a conspiracy of silence and of covering up the abuse by Cardinal, what was then Cardinal McCarrick. Archbishop Vigano focused most strongly on Pope Francis, who he called on to resign. He said Pope Francis had lifted a set of sanctions that Pope Benedict had placed on Cardinal McCarrick when he found out about his misconduct. Archbishop Vigano said that Pope Benedict had ordered McCarrick to move out of the seminary where he was living, to stop celebrating Mass publicly, and to stop traveling and making public appearances. Now, journalists dug into this story this summer, and they quickly pointed out that Cardinal McCarrick continued doing most of these things, and that Archbishop Vigano, the one making the accusations, had been with McCarrick during a number of the public appearances. In his second letter, he called Cardinal Wellette, whom he had worked closely with and who was prefect of the Congregation for Bishops. That's the Vatican body that uh, sifts through and selects names for the Pope to appoint as bishops. That he had worked closely with him, that they were good friends, they saw things. And he said he called on him to come out publicly and support or give evidence in his favor. After that second letter, the Canadian cardinal came out and uh, said, you know, first of all, there were no formal sanctions. There were uh, recommendations, etc., but not formal sanctions. Neither Benedict nor uh, Francis ever signed sanctions. And he said he accused Vigano of rebellion, of blasphemy, of creating scandal. Yeah, there were some pretty stinging, stinging lines in there. He asked him things like, how can you how can you say the Pope's name when you're celebrating Mass and things like that? Yeah, it, it was a very hard response. But it came the day after the Vatican had said it would it was investigating at the instructions of the Pope what actually happened in those years. And most have happened before before Francis became Pope, because Francis did, didn't appoint McCarrick to any of his positions, neither to bishop or, or archbishop or cardinal. John Paul II did. Not even Benedict appointed him. Benedict accepted his resignation. Right. Now, so what has come through in the first two letters, and it's confirmed in the third letter which came out last week, is that Archbishop Vigano seems, and Cardinal Wellet said it, seems to be using the question of McCarrick, the case of McCarrick, the abuse by McCarrick, right. as a pretext really to attack the Pope, whose general agenda he doesn't agree with. So he accused the Pope of cover-up without providing any evidence. He accused the Pope of giving McCarrick a free reign and sending him on missions to China and elsewhere. There's no evidence for that. And uh, Wellet really challenged some of the accusations. But now Vigano has come back with a third letter in this past week, reaffirming or repeating his accusations, curiously saying that Cardinal Wellet actually confirmed that there were sanctions, 
But he said, well, the word sanctions isn't important. That's a legalism. There were restrictions. Right, which in some way amounts to him walking back that claim, right? He's walked back. And uh, from a very strong insistence in the first letter that there were sanctions, that Benedict had imposed sanctions, that Francis had lifted sanctions, he's now at at the point of saying, well, don't insist on the word sanctions too much. Uh, Let's call them restrictions. Right, which were sort of agreed on informally, and there's no record of them. Yes, yes. And then he keeps with this uh, bizarre claim that McCarrick became one of the closest advisors of Francis in the nomination of bishops in the United States. And from all the people I've spoken to here, there is no evidence for this. Right. He he says that Francis uh, sent him on missions. There is no evidence for this. And he doesn't provide anything. And in the third letter, he adds no new evidence to support the charges he made in the first letter. A senior prelate here in the Vatican said to me, I think he's run out of ammunition. Jerry had mentioned to me before that whenever the Vatican officially responds to Vigano's accusations, they'll want their response to be watertight. This investigation seems to be that response. So I asked Jerry what we might expect from it. What they will probably do is pick out the central accusations he has made and say, that is what you said. This is what is in the archives to kind of dismantle his accusation. Or say, well, you've made that point. I know for sure from talking to many people, they are not going to get into a ping pong match with Archbishop Vigano. They say that Vigano is one who never gives up. He continues and continues and continues. Nobody here in the Vatican, to my the best of my knowledge, has any intention of getting into a ping pong game. They will answer his his main charges, and that will be it. They will, of course, one of the questions Vigano asked, one of the questions that's asked in the United States by many people, how is it that a man who was conducting himself in such a way an abuse could rise through the ranks of the church with people knowing rumors, maybe not substantiated claims, maybe some evidence, and clearly there was some evidence. How is it he could rise to become Archbishop of Washington and Cardinal? That question has to have an answer. And do you think that the results of this investigation will will answer that question or at least provide some clues? I think that's part of the investigation. They want to know how he came through. What was the evidence against him? What was known about his misconduct, the abuse, before he was appointed to Washington and to the other diocese? Yeah, it's sort of what's become this classic question in this abuse crisis of who knew what when. Jerry said he thinks that the results of the investigation will be out before Christmas. So we'll keep you up to date on that story here on Inside the Vatican and at americamagazine.org. Pope Francis met with President Moon Jae-in of South Korea last week, and the big news out of that meeting was that Pope Francis signaled that he would be willing to visit North Korea, maybe sometime late next year around his visit to Japan. Pope Francis has really strongly pushed for nuclear disarmament, so I asked Jerry if he thought that this was a sign that the Holy See might be involved in some negotiations with North Korea to push them towards denuclearization. Francis was very conscious over the situation in North Korea, and also the potential for a nuclear arms race in that part of Asia, and the risk of a nuclear conflict between 
North Korea and say the United States as seemed seemed to be uh, moving towards that direction at one point. So he is really determined to do what he can to help to uh, reduce and eliminate this risk. Now, the president of South Korea is a Catholic. He's the third Catholic to be president of South Korea. Catholics are about 10, uh, 6 million people in the country, 5, 6 million, uh, over 10, 11%, I think. And he is a man who, from the beginning, set out to reconcile with North Korea. And for reasons that we still do not completely understand, he has made big steps forward. He has three times met the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and at his last meeting with Kim, he said to him, look, if you want to really return to the community of nations, one of the best steps is to uh, invite the Holy Father, the Pope, to come to Korea. Do you think that would ever happen? Well, what Kim said to him, what President Moon said, was that, uh, yes, I would welcome him and I will give him a big reception in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. President Moon came to meet the Pope on the 18th of uh, October, some, some days ago. I was inside in the Pope's library. I was one of the few journalists who saw the public session of that private meeting. What struck me very much was the body language, the interchange, the little comments made between the Pope and the President Moon. They obviously really got on very well. They connected. Could you describe that body language and those little signs? Well, uh, the little side remarks, the uh, when they exchange gifts, the introducing of the persons. And then at the end, they, they seemed to want to spend, they had spent 35 minutes talking to each other in private with the help of an interpreter, but they still seemed to want to talk to each other. And they did so for a few minutes before leaving. And it was very clear, the President Moon had let it be known before he came that his really, the one thing he wanted was for the Pope to help in this peace process and to accept the invitation. President Moon did not bring a written letter of invitation. The reason for this, it was explained to me, is that the more conservative political circles in South Korea would not accept that their president acted as postman for the northern North Korean leader. He brought a verbal invitation. Afterwards, his press officer revealed that he said to the Pope, well, is the verbal invitation sufficient? And he, he was told, well, it's good, it stands, but an official invitation would, of course, be welcome. Now, what we're waiting for now is he will obviously report back to Kim, and what we're waiting for is for the North Koreans to issue an official invitation. And if this, if an invitation comes from North Korean leader. It is quite possible that the Pope, the Vatican may say, well, yes, but, you know, there's something also we would like. And maybe they might get uh, agreement to have a resident priest in North Korea or some some minimum step in the re towards religious freedom. Will Kim issue 
a formal invitation or send a delegate to the Pope uh, inviting him to North Korea. Uh, it's clear Pope Francis has made clear his willingness to go. And we'll keep you up to date on that story here on the podcast and at americamagazine.org. Inside the Vatican is produced by Colleen Deli and edited by Oliver Lazarus. Our executive producer is Eric Sundrup SJ. Our news producer is Kevin Clark. Our audio engineer is Leopold Stubner SJ. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org or follow us on Twitter at americamag. You can follow Jerry on Twitter at Jerry O. Rome, and you can follow me at Colleen Deli. For American Media, I'm Colleen Deli with Gerard O'Connell. See you next week.